0: I view journalism in the same way as any other sort of mission pursuit, which is we have to be really creative about the ways in which we fund it. The alternative to that is very scary, and that is that there is no journalism. Welcome to Crawford Media. My name is Hal
1: Crawford. Today, I'm speaking with former New York Times subscription guy, Tim Griggs. Tim now runs accelerator programs for news businesses all over the world. I came across him and his team during the Meta Accelerator workshops in New Zealand. I was on the advisory panel and got to attend a session. From that moment, I was hooked and was learning as much as anyone else. I ended up going to every session. One of Tim's defining traits is energy and optimism. He cares a lot. He also has very good advice Take a deep breath and break your problem down into manageable chunks.
0: It works no matter how deep the particular hole you're in. This is Tim Griggs and I'm the founder and CEO of Blue Engine Collaborative. So Tim, I was running through your career and
1: I was really interested to see how you've sort of You started in journalism, so I always like that. (laughs) Sorry to everyone who didn't start in journalism. You started in journalism, and after having done the editorial side, you drifted to technology and business. Is that accurate?
0: Yeah. I mean, I would say I never wanted to do anything other than being a journalist, but in, I guess it was 2007, so the last time we went through a recession globally, uh, I had to lay off about a third of my staff. I was the editor of a newspaper at that time. And I thought, I, I think I'd rather be part of trying to keep journalism alive than doing journalism myself. What is it about you that allowed that to happen? I love the the art and the science of of writing and reporting. I always just got more joy out of leading teams and being part of the big picture where are we going what are we here for what are we trying to accomplish as a as a team that always just gave me more satisfaction than being a reporter myself well you started in a paper in North Carolina I believe and and you took that paper
1: digital first how did you find that because that was back in the day when there was still a great deal of resistance in newsrooms
0: yeah I mean there still is I suppose that was at a time where I thought oh my how are we so far behind Making this transition, and yet looking back on it now, that's it's yeah, twenty years ago. So it was the you know early mid two thousands, and it was clear that we needed to figure out ways to reach audiences digitally, and yet there was still this you know a lot of the revenue at that time came from print, and so there was a a real business reason to be cautious of such a transition. But I mean, the audience trends were so clear back then. And how to figure out the, the sort of ways to do it, were not. And so just a ton of resistance for our team, you know, really at every step in trying to figure out how are we going to make that transition happen. That's still alive and well. I still
1: see that in a lot of regional publications. And I know you come up against that. So are, are those sort of those revenue dynamics and those business dynamics the same? Uh, are you coming across that still?
0: Well, it's changed and it's really region dependent and platform dependent and everything else. There are still regions of the world, as you you know really well, where print is still dominant. And, you know, those you see this in broadcast too in certain regions as well. So it's not just print, where I, sh- I should say sort of legacy platform is is dominant. And it's hard to see the trends well enough to start shifting resources to something that is not paying the bills. Yeah. Remember that whole print dollars versus digital dimes. And then some folks added to mobile pennies. The reality is if you do nothing, you're going to be at zero. So you've just, you've you've just got to find a way. I, I, I don't know. I view journalism in the same way as any other sort of mission pursuit, which is we have to be really creative about the ways in which we fund it. Because, the alternative to that is very scary, and that is that there is no journalism. And the thing about when something's
1: not there is it's uh, it's hard to talk about because it's not there. <laughs> you know, they call them news deserts, places that aren't serviced by local newspapers, but they're more kind of like black holes because, you know, black holes are very hard to detect because you can't see
0: them. I love that analogy. I had I never heard that. If you imagine the inverse of that, which is, the mere existence of a reporter can actually stave off some of the corruption without ever resulting in reporting. right It's just the presence of journalism.
1: Mm, mm. I've been in your workshops, and I know a lot of your expertise is around converting people, getting them to subscribe, and then retaining them. That is a major problem for for organizations, isn't it? actually, you know, having got subscribers retaining them? And and what's the most important thing
0: there? It's a great question. And you're totally right. Retention, keeping subscribers you have or uh, uh, mitigating churn, which is losing people that you have, is a major challenge for publishers. If you think about the digital subscription space, imagine that is its own cottage industry. It's only been around for just over a decade. Right. Really, if you think about the general interest digital news space, you're talking 2011, 2012 was the start of that. So it's new. And so because of that, a lot of publishers have spent a lot of time thinking about how do we get subscribers and not a lot of time thinking about how do we keep them? There are a lot of tools in the toolkit to deal with retention. Uh, too many to mention here, but I'll tell you a few that are um, Uh, I don't know, sort of obvious areas of opportunity for publishers. So one of them is uh, billing. It's not fun or sexy to talk about it all. (laughs) But just (laughs) making it easy for people to not be lost due to things like credit card failure. Uh, Credit card failure will kill, in some cases, 40 or 50 or higher, 40 or 50 or 60% of cancellations in a given month are what we call passive right? The subscriber may or may not have been even intended to cancel, but something happened with their payment instrument, their credit card or their digital wallet. And that is a, a digital retail or e-commerce or whatever you want to call it sort of expertise. It is not something publishers are typically good at. And frankly, a lot of the vendors in this space are not tip, not terribly good at it either. Mm-hmm. And so it requires publishers to learn about the sort of user experience that Typically, you only think about in digital retail. That's one of them. Another one is onboarding and sort of understanding the user journey after someone subscribes. So for most publishers, what happens is I sign up, I get an email that says, thanks, and I begin getting access to my digital benefits. If it's a paywalled site, for example, it means I can bypass that. That's about it. I don't actually hear much from the publisher about other ways that I might take advantage of this great product or service or why it matters in the community or saying, you know, without your support, we can't do this, right? So that's just maintaining that relationship and just sort of building that connection, that relationship over the, the subscriber life cycle is, is often completely forgotten, that part mm, of the journey. Mm, mm. And then there's a whole suite of things uh, that fall into sort of subscriber engagement, using data and analytics to help us make decisions about that. So I'll give you one quick example and then I will shut up about it. A lot of news organizations have a problem with what we would call sleepers or sometimes you'll hear them referred to as zombies. So digital subscribers are members who actually aren't using their benefits at all. And we should be able to identify that through data. A reasonably sophisticated publisher can do that and can intervene. If we see somebody who's slipping in engagement, we've got to be able to reconnect with them. Otherwise we're gonna lose them.
1: Mm, mm. Frequency of use is, what is one of the great signs of health of a subscriber, right?
0: Daily habit, probably the best predictor of, for most news publishers anyway, daily habit is, is probably the best indicator of likelihood to retain. You typically only hear this is too expensive when it's code for, I'm not getting enough value. Really? That's not a news thing. That's, a, that's any product or yeah. service ever, right? If it's worth it to me, then I wouldn't cite price. Mm. Not always true. Of course, there are people who are price sensitive, and we need to be super cognizant of that, both in acquisition and in retention. Mm. But uh,
1: mm. Mm. so, the Blue Engine Collaborative. Tell me more about this this business of yours, Tim. I've been in your sessions. I think they're awesome.
0: Just give us a sense of of what this thing is. Well, first of all, you're too kind to say that. I started a uh, sort of co- coaching and advising and consulting in early 2016. So whatever that is, six and a half years or so. And I was maybe a year or two in, realized that as much as I enjoy doing that work on my own, it's much more fun and interesting to, to do it with, with a team. And so we are now a, a group of mission first coaches and consultants that really work at the intersection of uh, journalism and sustainability. We actually do work outside of media also, uh, where we help nonprofits and, and other mission-based organizations uh, survive and thrive, uh, but l- largely our work is in, is in news. And uh, we focus on, you know, audience development and revenue and revenue diversification and product development, and newsroom transformation, and all the things we're talking about here today. We have a team of 20, 25, somewhere in that neighborhood, uh, folks all around the world. And we do work with individual organizations and we do a lot of program-based uh, uh, work as well. And just the, the name Blue Engine, in case that's a little odd or doesn't doesn't translate is uh, from the children's storybook the little engine that could and that is because we believe in sort of helping people and teams get up over that proverbial mountain <laughs> and we try to do it with uh, kindness and, and respect if, if you haven't read the book that's where that comes from
1: i actually thought it was a reference to uh, facebook now called meta because they were, are traditionally associated with the color blue, and you were working for Facebook; they were your client when I uh, encountered you.
0: Yeah, we we've done work, a lot of work with Meta. So the one of the programs you've experienced, we've we've done thirty three cohorts around the world, uh, funded by Meta. Uh, That was 2018 till just very recently. Uh, uh, We've also done work with Google and with uh, academia and foundations and all sort of all sorts of uh, players globally. We've had a great experience uh, working with Meta. Now, when you get beyond sort of the meta journalism project and you get into like the relationship between the industry and Meta, that, of course, gets a whole lot more more complicated. Uh, I do believe, you know, Meta and Google and other platforms are not the reason our industry is in the state it's in, may have exacerbated some of those issues. Mm, But mm. if you think about the print news industry in most countries, you know, it's, it had been in decline for some time. Yeah. And uh, we have to think about really creative ways to, to get there. If that means working with social platforms like Facebook or Instagram or others to reach and engage audiences Why would we not want to do that? You know, again, every market, every brand, every platform, all those dynamics are different. So this is a sort of global point of view.
1: Yeah. Tell me about some good stories. You get a lot of people who are, you know, digitally ignorant or quite fearful. Tell me uh, a redemption story, a, a notable redemption story.
0: Oh, it's a great question. I mean, we, when our view of this is that whenever we work with a team on a change, which is really what we're talking about here, is performance-driven change. It's like how do we go from print-centric to you know making uh, money and attracting audiences digitally, or or how do we go from uh, fearing going out of business to having a sustainable or or thrivable entity that can do real good? It's hard. Right? I mean, this shit is hard. We should just say what it is, right? At the outset, <laughs> this stuff is hard. And when we go in and work, especially with programs like the one you're, you're talking about, it's a sort of a portfolio, right? Some teams are going to feel a transformational difference and, and others may not. And this is sort of, at least for me, I feel like this is my life's work. That is like, how do we help this transition? What could be more noble and important and righteous than trying to keep journalism alive? you know what i mean and so sometimes teams realize that you know this is going to take a while or this is a transition we're not ready for or or whatever but yeah often you will find teams say that this is a new way of attacking the the work that lies in front of us and often it's it's just that simple. We try to offer a, a new way of working that breaks down really complex change into manageable bite-sized chunks and tr- try to provide a little bit of know-how so folks feel like they're not alone and, and they can do it. There is a uh, a family enterprise in North Carolina and it's in a place called Columbus County, Whiteville, North Carolina. And this is a family-run enterprise that had been around for a long time, uh, and was really struggling to imagine uh, how to survive digitally when everything they knew was about print and uh, you know small sort of isolated market, and you know it really came down to people who said, "There's no other way. We just have to break this down into small pieces and." And start doing so. They, you know, they brought in a little bit of talent. They may, had some hard decisions about some some folks that need to maybe needed to do other things or retire. And they brought in some uh, some sort of digitally native talent. They started uh, telling stories in different ways. They started, uh, you know, thinking about revenue digitally and in, including su- digital subscriptions and membership, and just being transparent with their audiences. We are at risk of going out of business if you don't help support us. And just a Outpouring from the community, I've actually been able to help connect that team with some teams in New Zealand because the stories are so comparable. And and they did it; they they pulled out uh, of of the morass and and uh, are thriving. Get out so, of it.
1: so the revenue is growing and 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 they're profitable.
0: Yeah, and shifting. Yep, shifting from uh, a print centric to digital centric and and building up cash reserve to sort of survive any yeah. you know instability and that sort of thing.
1: I like, Tim, what you say about breaking the problem down into small chunks. There's something about your particular combination that combined with the optimism that you bring makes it feel like, oh, okay, so I I don't have to feel like I'm drowning here.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I think especially when you're talking about news organizations that just have not had an opportunity to connect with others that are like them. You know, so one of the things we've spent the last six months or so thinking about is, you know, how do we start to pull together folks we've been fortunate enough to meet or work with around the world that are that are working on these things? We have a Slack workspace. We've brought together about six hundred people who all are in the space of audience growth and engagement, consumer revenue or sponsorship or other sort of revenue aspects, data and analytics, digital marketing, and just said, let's all kind of come together. And this will be a place where this com- this global community can kind of learn from each other. Mm. And, and that's been really fascinating to see the, the kinds of questions.
1: But as I mentioned earlier, you do these sessions and, and the sessions I attended were all on Zoom. Everyone listening to this has been in a lot of Zooms. And they can be pretty bad spaces for energy, you know. However, yours aren't like that. You bring a sense of urgency somehow. Do you have like a style guide for you and your trainers that says, this is how we do this sort of thing? How do you make that work?
0: Well, I don't know that we're ever really as successful at it as we would like. And it's been a journey, you know, because we, we had to move all the programs that we did live and try to figure out how to do them over Zoom. And it was rocky, right? Because you cannot port a live experience to a Zoom-based experience. You just can't. They're just totally different beasts. So uh, yes, is the short answer. Yes, we do essentially have a guide for how we like to to do these things. We try to make them highly participatory um, we set ground rules at the outset. That's things like unless you really have to, keep your camera on so we can see you. That helps us uh, understand body language. We just scan through faces constantly during these things, and also helps us understand if you know if we're losing uh, folks. We we ask people to speak up. We try to make them uh, very conversational. Uh, in the back end, what folks don't get to see is everything is planned down to the minute. And so, you know, we, we make sure that we are keeping pace. We never go more than really seven to 10 minutes without something being participatory, mm. whether that be a call out or a conversation or trying to connect teams or breakout rooms or that sort of thing. It's really hard to keep energy when you know people are multitasking. And so we are very deliberate about how we call on people, how often we do uh, breakout rooms, and for how long. You know how we have conversation among our teams. So you never want to have one person speaking. It becomes a webinar, and that's fine if your intent is a webinar. I personally cannot stand webinars. There are very, very few cases where that format makes a whole lot of sense.
1: Yeah. So Tim, what's the what's the toughest thing you've ever had to do in your job?
0: Well, I'll give you two. So, uh, professional challenges. uh, I would say the biggest uh, have been uh, launching the digital and running the digital subscription business at the Times. That the build up to that transition was uh, pretty grueling. Uh, It was real religion at that time. With even within the walls of the Times, the information wants to be free crowd was very loud back then. I know it seems like ancient history now, but, but that was the prevailing sentiment. And so, so that, that was really challenging. And to try to learn coming from being a journalist to then being in strategy, to then being in a product roles that were pretty highly technical and trying to figure out how to build and then, and then help launch a a subscription business when no other general interest news folks were really doing that. That was Pretty tough, but we had a great team, and and so uh, so maybe that doesn't top the list. I think the hardest things I've ever had to do have had to do with personnel. You know, making decision hard, very hard decisions about the team, and and particularly letting people go that you like or you know love personally, but aren't contributing in the right way to the team. And I've unfortunately had to handle a lot of. Either firings or layoffs, and those have always been the, the absolute heart, the things mm. that just you just want to pull your hair out. Uh, no, I think that has more to do with the fact that I'm an enormous control freak. <laughs> I uh, I like I like being able to have the flexibility. I don't actually get the flexibility that I'm talking about, but in theory, I should be able to make my own schedule. Uh, I have a, a two small children, and so the idea of like really managing. Uh, around their wants and needs is very appealing. I I, I did take, you know, four weeks off before we were able to have this conversation. So I can't say it never happens, but that that was the primary driver was, I just want to work for myself.
1: Tim, what's up for you next?
0: We are, uh, uh, as a team, you know we're just continuing to do the work that we love doing, which is a combination of working with publishers and, and other news organizations and then building these kinds of programs around uh, digital fundamentals, uh, revenue, audience building, and product, th- th- those areas in particular. And uh, we have a bunch of them in progress and a bunch more on the horizon. So we're going to, we're going to keep doing those things, always looking for, you know, ways to help out. We are not, I probably should have mentioned this in this sort of intro about us. I I, I think present company excluded, most consultants are pretty bad Mm -hmm. and uh, they want to sell you something. They think they have all the answers you know, they want to give you the three ring binder that has the, the plan that will collect dust. And as it sits on your desk for a decade, we don't do that. We just, we just want to help. And we try not to let uh, anything else get in the way of what we think of as a calling. And, you know, some people may, may mock that, or, or I think I'm not being genuine, but our our only aim is to help journalism organizations survive and thrive. And so wherever we think we can do that and have the bandwidth to do it right, then we're, we're there.
1: Tim, that is so refreshing to hear you talk like that, and I I share your uh, distrust of advice. <laughs> <laughs> I, I uh, I've tried to do it less and less. So I'm like, you know, whenever I get into advice mode, I just become so tedious. So um, I think
0: advice is fine as long as it's not this is the only way. Do oh come this. on!
1: I just I just yeah. think people don't listen to advice. People might find it entertaining to hear what you've got to say, and then they'll just go and do whatever they want to do.
0: Exactly. I mean, that, that is why a big part of what we try to do is what we just call coaching, right? Which is like, we will help you with your plan. But if the idea is help us write a strategic plan, we are not terribly interested in that. If it's help us make this change happen and be there as sort of an outside voice, sort of uh, m- mentorship or coaching, um, that tends to work fairly well for us the idea of like give us the answers does not yeah
1: awesome thanks so much tim uh what a great conversation
0: my pleasure thanks for the invite
1: next week i'm speaking with shit you should care about founder and driving force lucy blackiston if you don't know shit you should care about you probably should Lucy and team have 3.6 million followers on Instagram, and they're doing news like no one else. As you can probably tell from the name, it's aimed at a younger demographic. Thanks to Tim Griggs for being my guest this week, and thanks to Kevin for the music. Bye for now from me, Hal Crawford.